You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Hello, Anne. Hey, Kevin. How are you doing today? Not too bad. And today is Friday the 22nd of April 2022. Lots of twos in today's date, if yeah, you're into date numerology. Well, yeah, and they're all, yeah, it's all, all even numbers. 2-2 two, two equals 4 of the 4th of <laughs> 2022 two, two is 6. How are you? Oh, not too bad. I wasn't sure if you'd actually heard about this, but there has been a rumour going around this station, this community radio station, 3CR, in mm. the heart of Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. And this rumour is that I have got a doppelganger at this station. There's two of you. <laughs> How about that? It's, Although it's... this person has a different name. Her name is Mandy. Mandy. She's the producer on the Talkback show on Thursday mornings here. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was told that her voice sounds a lot like mine. Why would that be? Just just pure coincidence? Absolute pure coincidence. And actually, I think my voice sounds a lot nicer. So. <laughs> So Mandy and I happened to cross paths Mm -hmm. and she was kind enough to show me how the phones work in this studio. Right. As a result of that, we'll have a nice treat for our Larry and Larissa, our listeners today. We'll actually be speaking with someone apart from just each other. (laughs) A third person in the room. (laughs) A third person or at least a third voice. Have you got Mandy? Is Mandy joining us? Uh, No. No, I I don't think I could have Mandy in here. She's a bit ostentatious. She's just, yeah. I I want to see if anybody's seen you and Mandy in the same room at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It's like those movies, isn't it, where, um, you know, the actor meets themselves. Anyway. uh, Who who have you got? So we'll be speaking with Carmel Killen, who, in the interest of full disclosure... Carmel and I know each other in my off-air life. Excellent. So Carmel and I met while she was volunteering at the Wilderness Society. Let's just see if we can't uh, find uh, Carmel. Are you there, Carmel? I'm here. Hi. (laughs) Hello. The pressure of being the third person in the room. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I was just letting Larry and Larissa know that uh, you and I met when you were volunteering at the Wilderness Society. And yeah, I guess we did, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that's when I first started hearing about what the Wilderness Society was jumping up and down about, which is how well or how well not we are looking after our ecosystems in Australia. You kind of went off in your own direction and started this amazing community art project. And it's just around the corner from this studio where we're sitting. Yeah, it's at a, an amazing zero-waste cafe studio. Yeah, it's a great space. So they do coffee and the zero waste part of the business is the cartons, they get the milk in. They actually turn into like bags, bicycle bags. So they've got a sewing area out the back and food is zero waste, um, meaning it all comes in containers that go back to where they got it from rather than packaging, single-use packaging. Uh, oh, they're making soap out of the waste coffee too. So there's nothing that's wasted in this. Um, it's amazing, the whole zero waste thing. Can, can I ask so, you a question? It sounds like a wonderful cafe and it sounds like they do coffee and stuff, etc. Um, mm. What are you doing there? 
I'm <laughs> just drinking coffee. <laughs> no, well, I've just taken over the walls with um, this exhibition I've got up called Long Live the Species, and it is about 221 people from across Australia, from every state and territory, have drawn onto the backs of packaging that would have gone into recycling bins, tiny, tiny little drawings or paintings of every single one of our national threatened species. And that number currently is 1,845. So if you come to this exhibition, you can walk into one room and see every single one of our national threatened species up on the wall. Up on the wall. And that sounds depressing when you say it, but there's something about this exhibition and the way you've put it together. In fact, I will let Larry and Larissa know I contributed a couple of art pieces. So each one of these little, what is it, three by seven centimetre art pieces, each one of those is one of the species. And um, I think it's because you, you had this genius idea about the scale of the drawings and each one of them is just adorable and you fall in love with each yeah. little species yeah. when you look at them. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, the people who contributed, like it was a wide range of artistic abilities and I didn't put the call out for artists only. It was just anybody who wanted to um, draw and it really took off during covid first lockdown, people were getting a bit sick of making, you know, sourdough, whatever. (laughs) COVID kind of did me a favour, I think. Mm. So people could choose their own species and people could draw or paint in their own style, but I wanted to give it a consistent look too. So all the drawings had to be the same size. And it's just an explosion of colour. And because they're so tiny, you're really drawn into them. And you just have this incredible mix of both professional artists and illustrators and, you know, amateurs and kids, kids as young as six. And all of the drawings are just extraordinary together. Something very honest about naive art. Like you come mm-hmm. across these people who have oh, natural ability but no, yeah. no recognised talent and, and quite often they're the ones that catch your eye. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, what's nice about that too, Kevin, is that you've got the kids' art sitting next to professional artists. They're all there together. The diversity is just, it's extraordinary. A lot of people kind of comment on that as well. And look, it's not, I I never wanted it to be depressing. The depressing thing is that that we are losing species, but the uplifting thing is that there are people like you um, who are showing that they care about this and and getting people involved to reverse that uh, that whole process. Yeah, people don't realise how many species we have um, on the threatened They think of, you know, the koala, all the cute, iconic animals, and they really don't realise we've got that many. So I did want to shock people, but but to shock them into, oh, okay, feel overwhelmed or feel grief, whatever, do that. I think it's important to do that. But then, because I am very hopeful, very hopeful, um, and particularly with creative people, I do think there are a lot of creative solutions in going forward with this, you know, mess that we are all in. Yeah, I just want it to be a conversation starter and let people find their own ways into thinking how we're going to deal with this this problem in our Mm. own way. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, well, what I love about what you've done too, Carmel, is you have given voice to the majority of people who care because every time I see a survey about uh, who cares about the environment, it's usually like over 60%, you know, often higher. So three-quarters of the population really care about Who are those other 25%, and I want to find them. (laughs) Yeah, who are they? We should invite them to the exhibition. Imagine asking somebody questions saying, do you care about, you know, species going extinct? And and you say, no, I need to find these people. I need to (laughs) bring them to this exhibition. That really is one of my aims. I don't want to kind of sing to the choir so much. Um, Mm. I just love it when, you know, the shock when people walk into this exhibit and go, wait, wait, what, what, is this, what's all... And that's that's not even all of it. Well, that's absolutely right. This is just bureaucratic, um, you know, a list, the most ridiculous, dysfunctional... um, the list of the damned, really. Mm. Um, and it's only the national list. If you go, the state um, and territory have their own, so there's more. I'll just ask you what um, you can say about this list and what endangered means and what threatened means. Just a bit of a quick rundown, and then we might run to a, a break. And to be honest, I don't know what happens when, when we go to a break, whether we can still hear you. So you might have well, to go mum while we're okay. on a break. Fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but stay on the line. Um, I'm just curious because I had no idea that like critically endangered and threatened and all of these different sorts of things are going on with these lists. So can you give us a quick rundown on it? Okay, so the list we have, um, the Threatened Species List, comes under what is called the EPBC Act, Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which started in 1999, Howard brought it in. And they have categories, so critically endangered is the top list. If you're in the critically endangered category, you're the closest to extinction, and that's what you're really looking at. Underneath that is endangered, and it's a numbers game, though who's out there and how they're actually counting numbers is a little bit beyond me and how accurate that is anyway. So you start with critically endangered, then under that is endangered, and then you've got vulnerable, and then... There is this fourth category, which most people don't know about, called conservation dependent, and that only applies to fish species. Fish. and <laughs> Fish, yeah, and only eight of them. So it doesn't apply to any of the other fauna or the flora, and it's an economic decision because these are the fish that we can sell, that we can eat ourselves, that are sold in restaurants and shops here, and that we export. But... Some of them are actually listed as critically endangered. Wow. Therefore, they should, they should be saved, but they're not. They're wow. Not. So we've got them on our yep. plates, you know, in yep. our sushi or whatever, and they're yep. critically yep. endangered. Yep. We need to uplift okay. ourselves. Kevin might give us a cheery song. <laughs> I'll find something. I love, I absolutely love your music choices. Thank you. Really enjoy them. We're going to head to a fellow Harvey Sutherland with a song called Usance, I think it's called. Uh, another local act. I think he might be uh, Indigenous. I'm not quite sure. I've been hearing a lot of his stuff recently. He's just on my radar. So here's Harvey Sutherland. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. 
So that was um, Harvey Sutherland with the song Jussons. Trying my friends, Jussons. Nicely so, done. Thank you very much. Um, and we had um, Carmel on hold the whole time there. <laughs> now, Mandy didn't tell us how to operate this, this, this station properly, so we're figuring it out as we go along, uh, as it turns out. Carmel, I hope you didn't make a peep then. No, I didn't make a peep. Well, it was okay. I, I didn't. <laughs> I figured out how to mute you, so so that's okay. So oh, great. <laughs> we're sitting here, we just yeah. realised that Mandy didn't tell us how to mute you and we figured it out for ourselves. So you just kind of <laughs> press buttons, you know, go just keep pressing buttons until something works. That's that's how I figure it out. Right. What are you up to? What we're up to here is that uh, Carmel did just mention this piece of legislation, which is federal law, and it's called the Environment Protection and... I'm just going to stop there. Environment Protection. So supposedly this act is protecting the environment and Mm. biodiversity conservation. Supposedly this act is conserving our biodiversity. And I heard a seminar that was given by a fellow called Dr. Peter Burnett. And he is with the ANU College of Law. And he's an honorary associate professor there at the ANU. And he was actually also a former executive with the Federal Environment Department. And here I was thinking until I was listening to him and listening to Carmel that our laws were there protecting our environment because I guess I'm a child of the 70s. And who knew that this act just turned into a box ticking exercise for developers. So why don't we have a listen to what Dr Burnett had to say about it. Here's uh, Dr Peter Burnett. Today I want to give you the unfortunately sad and sorry tale of um, Australia's primary environmental law, the EPBC Act. So a bit of brief history uh, about this Act. The Howard government came to power in 1996 with a commitment to do a review of Commonwealth environmental law. So that's what happened. Senator Robert Hill was the Environment Minister. He got on with the job. So he did a deal with the states. Rather than working on you know what's, what's in this law, his first port of call was... What are the Commonwealth's environmental responsibilities? What belongs to the states? How do we carve it up? Basically a carving up of the jurisdictional cake. And the bits that the Commonwealth got under that agreement were given this label, Matters of National Environmental Significance, or MNES. He managed to get this through Cabinet, which I think is a bit of a minor miracle because the Howard government was a pretty dry government and they had a very deregulatory approach. But he managed to get this major piece of regulatory legislation through, and it was a major extension of Commonwealth environmental jurisdiction. How on earth did he pull that off? Well, I went through the uh, Cabinet documents in the archives, and I think he pulled it off by um, selling them on the proposition that he was going to devolve uh, a lot of Commonwealth decision-making back to the states, and he had two propositions. One is, I'm going to reorganise it and make sure that we only get involved in these things of national environmental significance. And secondly, I'm going to set up a mechanism where we can devolve a lot of decision-making back to the states. And that mechanism was called statutory bilateral agreements. So that's the proposition that he sold to Cabinet. He somehow he managed to pull it off. He didn't actually take the bill itself. I think if, you, think if Cabinet ever laid eyes on this big fat bill, they would have balked at it. Anyway, they didn't get to see it. It's over a 1,000 pages, quite complicated wasn't a complete miracle. They said to him, you can't have any new money. And the reason I mentioned that was it was a significant expansion of jurisdiction, a major new law, and he had to raid existing buckets of money to um, make it operational. And I think that had a long-term effect. This law has never been properly resourced. 
Uh, there's never been a full review of what kind of money do you need to make this kind of law work. And so I think there's a practical issue here of doesn't matter how good your law is, if it's not properly funded, it isn't going to work properly. Anyway, so the law gets passed, it becomes operational in 2000. So the matters of national environmental significance, just to give you a sort of practical idea of what this Act deals with, um, there's a whole range of things there, uh, 20 World Heritage Places, 119 National Heritage, etc. The big one is the threatened species, nearly 1,900 listed threatened species. And if you map the range of those species out across Australia, including the extent of ecological communities which can occupy quite large areas, I don't know how much, what percentage of the continent's covered, but it's a pretty big slice. So even though the Commonwealth's jurisdiction is confined to these listed things, if you mapped it out across Australia, in most places you would find most likely potential habitat for a threatened species. So that's what the Commonwealth looks after. That's what the bill's about. What does it actually do then with those matters of national environmental significance? Well, there are three streams of things that this Act does. The first is it identifies things for protection. So it has mechanisms for making things into matters of national environmental significance, typically by just putting them on a list, like threatened species get added to a list. That's when the jurisdiction of the Act is triggered. Secondly, there are various kinds of plans. So the the underlying policy there is that, well, once these things are protected, we should plan for their conservation. And the third thing is a mechanism for assessing and approving developments which might have a significant impact on these things. So the underlying theory there is notwithstanding that these things are protected, they're not protected in an absolute sense. It's still necessary to have environmental impact assessment uh, and potential approval. You can see that as a sort of three-legged stool. I reckon the middle leg is half missing, and it's half missing for two reasons, and this is a major reason why the Act doesn't work as it's meant to. The first is the plans are often missing, like the top one there, bioregional plans. We have 89 bioregions in terrestrial Australia and about half a dozen in the marine area, so we ought to have plans for all these areas, but in fact we don't have a single terrestrial bioregional plan. So that's a huge gap, and it means there is no guidance for decision makers coming from that kind of plan. There are various other kinds of plans, threatened species recovery plans, for example, but they suffer from a different deficiency, which is that they are often written in vague general advisory language. The plans don't really tell you not to do anything, so that that provision becomes virtually uh, just a tick-the-box exercise. The number of environmental uh, assessments done over the sort of 20-year operation of the Act more than 6,000 of them in that time, just over 4,000, so that's about two-thirds of them. They come in the door and they go straight out again because they get a stamp put on them saying they're not likely to have a significant impact uh, and out they go. Most of the, the rest, the most common result is that the development is approved with conditions uh, attached. There's a small number of cases where the, the decision actually, no, you can't do this development some of them are so egregious that they get kicked out right at the beginning. They come through the door. The minister says, this is clearly unacceptable to just know. But they're relatively rare, and that's a, one of the major criticisms that environment groups make, that almost every child gets a prize. 
you're very unlikely to get a no if you go into this process. The last factual thing to draw to your attention is the rise of environmental offsets. So these are biodiversity offsets, not carbon offsets, but they've gone from a relatively rare thing 20 years ago to becoming almost the norm, up around 80%. And what this is really showing is that the regulatory culture has changed. Industry now expects to get their approval and they expect to be subject to an offset. Sometimes those offsets are delivered in cash. Other times they will buy a piece of land and undertake to um, uh, conserve it or they might buy the land and hand it over to government to be incorporated in a reserve, that sort of thing. That suggests we're headed down a track where the expectation is people pay for the right to develop. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. It seems to me that what happens, especially with conservative politics, is that um, if you let them uh, run a department that they'd rather not, they just make it sound like they're doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. stack it with people and then figure out a way to make it work in their interests. For instance, yeah, the Human Rights Commission, which uh, Tim, Tim Wilson, Wilson, who was a, a staunch opponent of the, the Human Rights Commission, oh, yeah. uh, then the coalition gets in and they make him the Human Rights Commissioner. They put him <laughs> in to, to run, run, run the boat. Yeah. Uh, so are we talking about a similar thing here where Howard has set something up? Yeah, well, I think there might be some kind of a pattern there, Kevin. Mm. So this act came out in 1999. Okay, Under the Howard government. Under the Howard government. Now... We were talking about the use of temporary migrant workers recently and those visa laws changed in 1996. Right. The Aged Care Act, 1997. The first privatised contract for employment services, 1998. Well, we know that conservative governments want um, small government government. intervention. So this to me sounds like a mechanism where it appears that they're... uh, being involved and mm. doing the right thing. And not funding. I love that part about, oh, we're not going to put any money into this. Again, we hear a department that has no money, apparently. Mm. Apparently the, go- the government can't find any money. Can't afford to, can't afford to fund <laughs> it. Uh, what's going to happen? Is there going to be inflationary or something? No, it just goes against their ideology. They, yeah. they As just if don't we want don't to. have any unemployed ecologists out there. Yeah. So, you know, Carmel, the thing that uh, shocked me most about hearing what Dr Burnett had to say was that The Act was supposed to set up all these bioregional plans, 80-odd of them, and they've done absolutely none on the land and they've done a couple of marine ones, which is like what you're going to do about protecting all these ecosystems. (laughs) No, it hasn't been set up at all. And, I mean, as you've just been saying, it's really set up to facilitate development. So every 10 years the Act um, is up for review and in 2020 the Samuels Review came out just damning it left, right and centre and made a whole raft of suggestions, none of which the government um, followed through with. But they were trying to devolve powers to the state because when that happens, then obviously it's going to be even easier to get development approved. But the Senate um, shot that one down. Yeah, in the next clip from Dr Burnett, we'll hear about these reviews. And I think... This particular talk he was giving was in response to those reviews coming out. There's been a year now since those reviews, and I think there's been a few shenanigans go on in the last 12 months. Um, But let's have a listen to the second part of Dr Burnett. Sure. 
Then if we come to these two major reports last year, the first one was from the Auditor-General uh, and the second one was Professor Samuel did his independent uh, review. In terms of the actual findings of the audit, absolutely scathing. I've never seen an audit report like this in all my career, um, the Auditor-General, saying despite the fact there's been various reviews uh, of this Act, it's still not effective. Uh, the department's approach is not proportionate to environmental risk. The administration's neither effective nor efficient. One that really surprised me. Conditions of approval assessed 79% are non-compliant with various kinds of guidance and contain errors. Now, of course, that implies that a large number of them could be open to legal challenge if people were minded uh, to bring them. Uh, environmental offsets, I mentioned, the auditor says, well, you've got inconsistent decisions, you haven't got a register of offsets, we can't even see where they are. Then we get on to Professor Samuel's review. These are some of his key messages. Environment's in overall decline and under increasing threat. The Act's not clear about its intended outcomes. We don't even know quite what it's trying to achieve. The Act talks about things like promoting ecologically sustainable development, or ESD. That's not even defined. Nobody trusts this act anymore. Business doesn't trust it. The environment groups don't trust it. General community lack of trust. He says we need to actively plan for environmental outcomes. Harness Indigenous knowledge. I mean, this tied into the destruction of the Jukin Caves in Western Australia because this act might have been invoked to stop that destruction, um, but it wasn't. And he puts forward this model of national environmental standards. So this is the centrepiece of his reform, this new concept. Uh, let's have national standards focused on outcomes. And he says, yes, you can devolve to the states, but only, only in the context of having these standards and an independent regulator to oversight that process and make sure the states are taking the kinds of decisions that the standards require. We need fundamental information systems and I think they need to be written into law. We need a statutory body, something similar to the Weather Bureau or the, or the Bureau of Statistics to keep environmental information on an ongoing basis. We need a new legal framework consisting of the standards and comprehensive regional plans. In my view, the law has to require that development approvals conform to the standards and to the plans. Otherwise, we won't get outcome-based decision-making. Otherwise, we won't get any change so when you look at the sort of de facto bottom line, there's virtually nothing in this Act that stops you from approving anything. It have to be a really egregious decision, uh, I think, to be struck down um, by a court. This Act is suffering from a lot of problems. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. What I'm thinking about is that this Act, which is apparently a thousand pages long, and I just loved his description of the history of this Act, that to get it passed he had to not show it to the politicians, otherwise they would have run a mile from all these pages. But but what I think about is how all these pages of legalese are a lot to do with why Australia now holds one of the world records in species extinction. Are we second highest in mammal extinction rates? Is that right? No, we are the highest. We are the highest. We're the um, highest. Well done, Australia. <laughs> 34. 34 since um, 
colonialisation and compared to America in the same period, they have one, one mammal extinction. Wow. Um, I keep hearing different figures. Um, many put us at number two for deforestation after Indonesia. Mm-hmm. I've, heard, I've heard from uh, my sister's involved with this. She was an environmental officer up in Queensland a while ago, and she said that the rate of clearing up in Queensland is oh. is the highest in the world. If you're talking about a per yeah. per kilometre um, yeah. clearing, Queensland is the worst in the it world. It is, and it's actually thanks to Queensland that we have that number two record of deforestation. At the very least, we are in the top five, but, yeah, most people put us up there. And number two, thank you, Queensland, very yeah. much. Yeah. yeah, well done. Um, and the other thing that really shocked me that Dr Burnett was saying was that all of these projects that go through for assessment, 80% of them are non-compliant. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> like, what do you do? What do you do? You do, a, you do an art <laughs> exhibition. You, you raise you awareness wherever exhibition. you possibly can. Uh, the, other thing, the other thing that I do with my exhibition too, like it's not something people just be overwhelmed, be amazed, look at it and go, oh, it's beautiful, and then go home. Hmm. But I get people to write... Just little messages. Currently, they've been to Susan Lee, our environment minister. The messages are just on backs of recycled packaging too. And at the end of the exhibition period, I bundle them all up with a cover note. I send them to her. I guess because we've got an election coming up, I would like to still do that. It's much better to address somebody directly, you know, dear... Minister Lee or dear Susan, whatever, um, has more impact than dear Environment Minister because we don't know, you know, mm-hmm. whether it'll still be her or whether it'll be somebody else. So you are helping people to sort of channel their frustration yes. and their desire yes. to see a change. Yes. Because, and people say to me, so I've run this at a, a public art gallery in Queensland, and people just say to me, they're so kind of shocked and usually very passionate about the environment. They go, well, what can we do? What can we do? I said, well, look, writing letters, if you can write to your local MP, and research has shown handwriting has more, um, is way more effective than just shooting off an email, mm. which, as we all know, can just get lost in the ether. If you get down to the exhibition, um, Karma will definitely make sure your, your letter gets to the right person. Yeah, start with your local MP. Yeah, and then so you I feel get... like you're not the only one as well. You're not the only no, person who's right. concerned about it. So, you know, if they can see what other people have written as well, it's a, and it's, it's quite cathartic for people too, even if they're just writing a few little lines. Mm-hmm. Some people write poems. <laughs> it's really lovely. <laughs> Add a little squiggly drawing to the words. And I display them at the exhibition too. I have them hanging. I put them on branches, so it's like this growing tree of, Change our nature laws, you bastards. Yeah. <laughs> Although yeah. I do tell them to be polite. I think I'm getting over polite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although, yeah, no, we do, I don't want to turn into one of those 1970s snapper oh, no. heads. No, no. Just let them know if you're yeah. pissed off about something, yeah. then just say it. And I get them to just sign their name and put a postcode. That apparently is what politicians need to know. I did hear that, like, if you're writing letters as well, that's why. Going to your local MP is, is your best shot and getting them to direct your message to the Environment Minister because if you're writing and you're outside there, you're not a constituent, then they don't really care. That mm. could end up in the bin. So That's, you've got to figure out who your MP is. You've got and... to, yeah, you've got to be a bit strategic about it if you want to 
you know, have even a little bit of a effect. This could be an interesting yeah. um, interesting election because there's a lot of these teal uh, candidates. Exactly. Uh, I would yeah. suggest that um, if you wanted to impact on this, this issue, that there are independents who would take this on board more seriously than uh, and your incumbents than your incumbents. So maybe maybe um, just consider that when you're corresponding, uh, who you might be better off corresponding to. Might be mm. better to wait mm. yeah. a month or yeah. so. If you've got these teal candidates and you've got incumbents who uh, don't take this seriously, and you've got teal candidates who do, mm. and if you're sending letters to both. Uh, and it becomes an election issue, then it might have a bit more bite. So mm. timing is always critical. I'm not telling yeah. you who to vote for, but <laughs> not, I wouldn't no, suggest no, no, that. No. But if you want to have a bit more teeth in this, regardless of who comes out at the end, if it becomes uh, an election issue, so if there's a vote in it, it might carry some weight. Yeah, and regardless it comes out, as you say, we have these highly dysfunctional environment laws. So if we have a new environment minister, we've still got these laws and they still need to be changed and we still need to keep pushing for that. At the federal level. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Some of the names of these species make you absolutely fall in love with them. The little bobble nut is so adorable. Well, what about one of my favourites? This frog is called Neglected Frog, and it's oh. on the critically endangered list. Oh, that's, that's just so common sad. name. Neglected, Neglected frog. frog. What chance does that poor little thing have? We've got to help that frog. We have to. <laughs> We've got to get out there for the <laughs> Neglected the Frog. <laughs> That'll make you feel good, helping the Neglected Frog. It'll brighten your day. <laughs> And I've got to say, one of my other absolute favourite characters in this exhibition is the blind velvet worm. The blind velvet worm, yeah, that's my favourite. That's either a great band name or um, drinking club. <laughs> Sorry, not that, that might that might motivate me to form a band. Just that, that, that. <laughs> the blind velvet worm band. Now, now, where's your, where's your exhibition again, uh, Carmel? Whereabouts is it being it's held? Down at a great little place called Into Coffee at. 2A Robert Street in Collingwood. 2A Robert Street in Collingwood? In, into Coffee? Yeah. Into Coffee, yeah, they're into coffee. As they if, like, uh, like, are you into coffee? And I go, yes, I'm into coffee. <laughs> and uh, how long is it on for, uh, Carmel? How long, how long? Um, so it's, it's open today and it will be on till Sunday the 1st of May, so right. just 10 days. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and for all the work you've done uh, with this exhibition. Everyone who's in Melbourne should get on down to it because it, it'll absolutely delight you as well as breaking your heart. Exactly. Both those things. Good on you. Thank Thanks, you. Man. Thanks very Thanks. much, Carmen. Nice to meet you on the airway. Nice to meet you too. I hope to meet you at, at the um, Inter Coffee fairly soon. Inter Coffee. <laughs> Excellent. Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events, and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au
In case you're wondering just what Australia's record-breaking march towards species extinction has to do with macroeconomics, the way I see it, the Australian Federal Government has two jobs. One is to create laws, the other is to create money. The question is, for whose benefit is the government doing this creating? As Dr Peter Burnett mentioned, an old trick for not enacting a law is to not fund it properly. In the case of the EPBC Act, this looks like not having enough staff and equipment to collect data on how well our unique ecosystems are doing, to monitor and enforce compliance with the law, to make plans for protecting our bioregions, to maintain a register of offsets, or to evaluate the effectiveness of those plans and offsets. If a government does not fund a law properly, it is making a political choice, not a financial choice. We know this from what modern monetary theory tells us about how money is created. The process for creating money looks like a parliamentary process, followed by a very secure accounting process. So the Australian Federal Government debates and passes an appropriation bill. The Treasury, using the mechanism of the central bank, then acts as instructed to create the money required by the appropriation bill. The central bank creates the money by typing numbers into appropriate bank accounts. This is how the federal government creates Australian dollars when it spends. It can only spend dollars by creating dollars. It can only create dollars by spending dollars. So the Australian federal government does not tax and it does not borrow in order to get the money. So the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. The Australian federal government can always afford to purchase whatever is for sale in Australian dollars. The Australian Federal Government could purchase the expertise, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and the computers, the office space, the boots and the sample jars, whatever else is needed to monitor and care for Australia's environment. If the Australian Federal Government says it can't afford to do this, it is either ignorant of how the economy works or it is choosing not to make it a priority. It is making a political choice, not a financial choice. We have to wrap up. We've we got have to go. to go. Because we've got um, Mafala is coming up next with Vicky. Nice change of pace. 
yeah, if they can figure out that they can afford it, then we would have a much better environment. So that's, that's important. Right. Anyway, uh, we need to get out a little and uh, we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.